gentlemen. I got him. Well, good morning. And um, J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. It's really not so much that I like the Jets. I just hate the Steelers. Man, do I hate the Steelers. Especially Heinz Ward. I mean, I hate him in Christian love. I just, I hate him. So, um, here we are at Parshat Yitro. And if you'll see from the shadow on the board... Israel was here in Egypt. They now are heading off to the land, which is up there. And here is Sinai. This was Egypt. Makes you wonder why I just went to the trouble of erasing all that. Israel was up here somewhere. Python Ramses, these were the cities that they were building up in the northeastern part of the Nile Delta. God is going to lead them to the promised land, which is up there. But they got to get from point A to point B. Not to give too much away, it's going to take a while. That was not the original plan, but part of the original plan is what is about to go on here this morning. Very important part of the story involving the giving of the law. Now, something very important uh, to know is that we don't know where the heck this happened, Right? Um, traditional site is here, a place called uh, Jebel Musa, the Mount of Moses, uh, that uh, St. Catherine's Monastery, you may have heard of that, that's in the Sinai, that might be there, it might have been here, it may well have been over here in the place that would have been known as Midian, this is the Arabian Peninsula by the way, that may help you, uh, but uh, either way, we don't know exactly where this happened. Much like the burial of Moses is not, you know, we find, again, not to give too much away at the end, Moses is buried and nobody knows where. Um, uh, It may be useful to recognize that we don't know exactly where this law was given, and maybe God doesn't really care that we know exactly where this law was, was given. There are places in the Bible where it's very clear that something happened at a certain place. That place is identifiable. In fact, there are times when God says, now look, I want you to make an altar here. I want you to make uh, some sort of a, a, a commemorative uh, pile of rocks or, or, you know, a statue or, you know, a little engraving like, you know, Israel was here. But uh, this is not one of those times. And we're going to see that the, the place where God gives his people the law has a certain holiness that is given to it by the fact that God gives his people the law there. But it doesn't stay. The place itself is not holy insofar as it is the place. It is only holy because at the time when God is using that place to deliver his law. Which may help us to not be bothered so much that we don't know exactly where it happened uh, or may not. But uh, here we are in chapter, starting in chapter 18 of Exodus as we go through Torah. And uh, this is Parshat Yitro. And it is known as Parshat Yitro because... Uh, the first uh, word of the, of the passage basically is Yitro or Jethro. Yitro, uh, anybody remember who Jethro was? Moses' 
We didn't actually set that up, but <clears throat> the biblical Jethro is Moses' father-in-law, the father of, remember his wife's name? Zipporah. And he has uh, two kids, they are Gershom and Eliezer, right? Now, one of the things that Ron mentioned to me uh, a few weeks back uh, before he went over to China to search out the original recipe for General Tso's chicken uh, Ron, Ron uh, complained that I didn't mention one of the most interesting features of that strange scene where God is hunting Moses down and is going to kill him. Uh, Zipporah, thinking quick, grabs a flint knife, circumcises their son, and God stops looking for Moses to try to kill him. Uh, Ron said, you forgot to mention the fact that right after that, the family splits up. Right after that, uh, evidently, we learned from the beginning of this passage, uh, Zipporah and the kids head back home to Midian while uh, Moses goes to Egypt to do the whole let my people go thing. Uh, well, here is the blessed family reunion with the father-in-law. So, beginning of chapter 18, Jethro, the priest of Midian, father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything that God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how Yahweh had brought Israel out of Egypt. And after Moses had sent his wife, uh, sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received them and her two sons, uh, one of them named Gershom, because Moses said, I have become an alien in a foreign land, the other named Eliezer, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' son and wife, came to him in the desert where he was camped near the mountain of God. Maybe here, maybe here, maybe there, we don't know. And Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went to the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how Yahweh had saved them. Anybody remember what some of those hardships were? If you look at the shadow on the whiteboard, you may be able to see. What were the hardships that they had faced? What, not enough to eat, so they had to eat. God provided manna and quail. They had to drink. God provided water. They also were beset by enemies, right? Initially the Egyptians, but then we also, uh, at the end of the last passage, saw God deliver them from the Amalekites, right? Uh, so Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things Yahweh had done for Israel and rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to Yahweh who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. And you get the, the sense here that Jethro, having been a priest of Midian, may well not have been a priest of Yahweh. And this may well have been Jethro's conversion experience. Um, so... Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. Well, the next day, as he was wont to do, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. They stood around him from morning till evening. And when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? One of those questions that a son-in-law loves to hear from the father-in-law what are you doing? Why are you doing it? 
Moses answered, Well, the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. And then that classic father-in-law statement, What you are doing is not good. Love hearing that one. You and the people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You can't handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice. May God be with you. So uh, Jethro then sets up the judiciary. He says, look, work it out so that you've got people who handle the lesser cases. The big stuff can come to you, but you're going to wear yourself out. Everybody's going to be fed up. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. And again, not everything that is described in the narrative portions of Scripture is normative. But sometimes... That's just what you do, even if somehow what your father-in-law says means that the signal has to magically get through the air from the cable box to the TV. You just do that and then wait to see that it doesn't work and do something else. But Not like I've ever had that experience. So Moses chose men from all Israel, made them leaders of the people, uh, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. They took the difficult cases to Moses, the simple ones they decided themselves. And Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. Well, there's something kind of interesting about this passage, something that seems a little odd. Can anybody tell me what that is? Other than the fact that there's a father-in-law telling his son-in-law what to do. That never happens yet. Uh, Jeremy? That what? Well, that, now that's interesting. And, and now we, we've seen this before, haven't we? Right? I mean, you, you get this where the, the, there's a righteous foreigner who comes in and straightens out God's people. Right? With God's, Jethro's daughter, for one. Yes. I mean, boy, that was pretty important. Right? Zipporah. This is gonna, you're going to get this later on in, in the story, too. Uh, so um, one of the things that's interesting here is that, uh, is that this is... Um, God providing, and this the, the big term for this is, is general revelation, but the idea is that human wisdom and, uh, and, and the developments of, of, uh, of human society are one of the ways that God can reveal to us the way things ought to be, right? So God doesn't need to sort of drop, you know, the force equals mass times acceleration uh, in, into a, uh, a document that we're going to read someplace. That's something that human beings can discover. So one way that God reveals things to us is, is through people who aren't even necessarily his. In fact, later on, we're going to find out in, in the prophets, God can even use foreign kings, foreign rulers, who are completely opposed to God in order to accomplish his, prince, his purposes. Because God's God and he can do that. Right? What else is unusual about this, this passage? What else just sort of seems to stick out a little bit? What happens to the wife and kids? That's a good question. We don't really hear much about them after this. Um, and that's not necessarily all that unusual, uh, you know, because, frankly, most women in the Bible end up being uh, bit players. Uh, but, no, we don't really hear much about them after this. What about verse 20? Teach them the decrees and laws and show them the way to live. And the duties there to perform. They haven't gotten them yet, <laughs> as BJ said. They haven't gotten them yet. 
right? So it, it, you know, there are a couple different things that could be going on. It could be that that some of the decrees and laws of the people had already been established or were germinating before God revealed all of Torah at Sinai. Uh, it could also be, and some of the rabbis think, that this story is kind of put out of place, that this story is designed to remind us, even before God gives his people his Torah, that God is also going to be instructing his people through some of the most unlikely and unexpected of ways. Uh, it could also be that, that uh, they want to make sure that we get uh, because from here on, by the way, we've had a lot of action from here, right? We had uh, Adam and Eve, we had Cain and Abel, we had a flood, we had uh, urban development, we had the, the, uh, the, the migration of the patriarchs over to the land, we had going to Egypt, we enslaved, I mean, all sorts of real action. The action's about to stop, right? We're about to get a whole lot of law. So it may be that, that uh, the writer of Exodus wanted to kind of get Moses' family out of Midian to Sinai with him so that they could be there with him as they're going on with the next part of the story. We don't exactly know. But, uh, but uh, it, it, we do, there is sort of a sense that everything is kind of in place for what comes next, which is uh, that Moses sends his father-in-law home. Um, and then, in the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai. Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and Yahweh called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you're to say to the house of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. You know, the whole earth is mine, but you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Moses, this is what I want you to tell the Israelites. He went back, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all the words that Yahweh had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything Yahweh has said. And Moses brought their answer back to Yahweh. And Yahweh said, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so the people will hear me speaking to you and will always put their trust in you. And so here we have uh, Yahweh establishing Moses' leadership and confirming the position that Moses has here, the role he has for the people. And he sets the limits around Mount Sinai. He says nobody can come close to it. The people need to purify themselves. They need to prepare for this day. They need to wash up. They actually need to uh, abstain from sexual relations for a few days. This is going to be a big deal, and I want everybody to be ready. Nobody gets near the mountain. No animal gets near the mountain. If anything does, you have to kill it with a projectile so that you yourself don't go near the mountain to kill it because that would be kind of productive. So then Yahweh descends to the top of Mount Sinai, calls Moses to the top of the mountain. Here we have heaven and earth meeting, so to speak. Moses went up. Yahweh said to him, Go down and warn the people so they don't force their way through to see Yahweh and many of them perish. Even those priests who approach, the, approach Yahweh must consecrate themselves or he'll break out against them. Moses said to Yahweh, look, they can't get up here. You told us to set limits, we set limits. Yahweh replied, all right, go down then, bring Aaron with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to Yahweh or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And we actually... Uh, have uh, video footage of that event. Chuck, do you want to put that up? 
Back then, webcam technology didn't have audio. No? Ah, there we go. Let's try that again. Moses went to the mountain, and God spoke unto him. Moses, this is the Lord thy God commanding you to obey my law. Do you hear me? Yes, I hear you, I hear you. A deaf man could hear you. What? Nothing, forget it. Oh, Lord, why have you chosen me? What would you have me do for you? I shall give you my laws, and you shall take them unto the people. Yes, Lord. shall give these laws unto thy people. Hear me. Oh, hear me. All pay heed. The Lord, the Lord Jehovah, has given unto you these fifteen. Ten. Ten commandments for all to obey. Funny. Turns out Moses looked more like Mel Brooks than Charlton Heston. Who knew? Actually makes sense when you think about it. <clears throat> well, if, if you've ever been in a synagogue, and I know most of you have, you know that in the back of the synagogue there is the Ark, right? That's not the Ark of the Covenant that Indiana Jones found. That, that's later on. You get the Ark in which the Torah scrolls are kept. In the synagogue, there, there actually is a scroll that has the, the Torah on it. And uh, on over a top of that, you usually see what? Give you a hand. It kind of looks like this. Toast. No, it's not. No, not toast. The Ten Commandments. Right? Uh, symbolizing the the, uh, the two tablets of the law with the Ten Commandments. Here's the curious thing about it, though. Different folk have different ways of figuring out which ten the commandments are. Let me just quiz you. Don't look at your Bibles. Don't look at your Bibles. Put them away. Yes. Thank you. So, uh, 
Give me a commandment. What's that? You shall have no other gods before me. No idols. No what? No carved idols. No blasphemy. Keep the Sabbath. Okay? Honor your father and mother. No coveting. That's blasphemy. Not not what you said is taking the Lord's name in vain is blasphemy. Okay. No coveting. No murder. I'm sorry. What's that? Yes, sometimes one way uh, that these get laid out is sometimes coveting is set apart as two commandments. No coveting your wife, no coveting goods. Uh, Somebody said adultery. No stealing. No bearing false witness. Probably uh, the bearing false witness thing probably doesn't mean lying generally, although I don't think God's a fan of it. It it specifically refers to testimony in a a courtroom kind of setting, right? So, yeah, uh, some of us may have grown up in a situation where coveting gets broken out into two because uh, no idolatry gets merged in with having no other gods before me. Um, Some of the rabbis actually break this out as 13 different commandments. But usually, this is the way it it gets done. And by the way... um, I'm writing right to left because Hebrew goes right to left. And if you, again, you're in the synagogue and you see in the Torah arc, they're going to have up there in Hebrew the first couple words of each commandment, and uh, they're going to go pretty much uh, like that. Well, here's the interesting thing. Chuck, if you could throw that slide up. This is... uh, uh, from a uh, 9th century uh, Old Testament uh, that was uh, uh, from the British Library. And uh, basically, starting from about here, you get the, uh, you get the Ten Commandments. Um, so down, so here and here, and then actually another few lines that, that are not on here are the Ten Commandments. Now, you may notice this, too, if you look in your English Bibles, but you especially see it in the Hebrew Bibles. If you divide the text, the the commandments like this, where thou shalt not murder is the beginning of the second tablet, the second tablet starts right around here. In fact, Chuck, uh, if we we zoom that in, this is uh, lo, the word lo, uh, tirzah, so... uh, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Um, and so, uh, and then you get the, the coveting later. You, you, you shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. And then the other lines are on the next next page. But you, you've got something of a, a lopsided tablet situation, don't you? Now, it could just be that God doesn't really care about the design aspect of it. The aesthetic's not that important to him. But there's another way that we could shake this out. If you cut it off 
in the middle of the text, roughly in the middle of the text, then what you get is the break right here. Now there's a sense in which it's, you know, these kind of hold together. They all, they start with the same word. They kind of all flow the same way. And, and there also is no really sort of specific religious content to them, right? Obviously this is given in the context of God giving his covenant, God giving the law. Unique among other ancient Near Eastern legal documents like this, by the way. What you get in other ancient Near Eastern legal documents around this time uh, that we found is the king gives the law. Now the gods may be invoked as giving the king the authority or backing the king up for the laws that he's giving. But here it's God himself who is giving these laws. And, and these, you know, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, bearing false witness, coveting, these sorts of things are, are fairly common. The Sabbath was an innovation. This is something that we don't find uh, in other ancient Near Eastern documents, honoring your father and mother. Um, that may well refer to providing for uh, folks in their old age. But, uh, but if we just take the text, if we just take the amount of text, the middle point really comes after the third commandment. Now, it could be that God just gave Moses two tablets in case he dropped one, and the whole thing was written on each one. But it could well be that the first tablet, so to speak, is, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image. You shall not take the name of your Lord in vain, because God is not going to put up with that. But there's something else that's missing from this. might call it the preamble. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Right? Oftentimes that preamble is the most important of the doc- part of the document, right? Getting of our Constitution, the preamble, we the people, the United States of America, in order to form our perfect union here, the preamble goes, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Why might it be important for this law document, this covenant to be started off with that? Yes, Louise. Yeah. Yeah, he's talking about what he did for this specific... And you get this, the previous chapter, right? He says, I'm going to make you a, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Did, did he do that for the Midianites? Or for the Perizzites? Or for the Jebusites? Did he make them a kingdom of priests, a holy nation? Did he do that for the United States of America, by the way? No, he did not. Uh, only the Israelites, only this one nation, did he say of them, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. I'm going to be in a specific, unique covenant relationship with you so that you can be part of me accomplishing my purposes. I've got the whole redemption of the universe to accomplish, and I would like you to be playing a key role in this. 
And considering the fact that when you were a bunch of slaves in Egypt, you probably weren't going to be much help to me in that project, I got you out of there. I'm about to bring you into a land where you're going to be able to work this stuff out. I'm giving you my Torah so that you know how. I even sent Moses' father-in-law, made Moses put up with hearing his father-in-law tell him how to run things so that you could have a decent independent judiciary. I've been feeding you in the desert so that you're not going to die before you get to this land because that would also be counterproductive. But let's not forget in all of this, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So if anybody's got a right to tell you how to do things, maybe it would be me. Look, I'm the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. If I tell you you have to turn around three times before you go to bed at night, I could tell you that. Some of the laws may make you think like that. But look, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Apart from me, you would be nothing. So I have every right to be the one to tell you how to live. This in addition to the fact that I'm going to tell you how to live well, that this is for your good, that this is for your benefit. This is, you're going to live a blessed and prosperous and abundant and safe and peaceful and happy life because I'm giving you my Torah. But in case that isn't charming you, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I have a claim on your life. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to suggest that those who have been redeemed from slavery to sin by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ might owe the same kind of respect to him. Marlene, you had a question? And there are positive commands here, too. I mean, you will keep the Sabbath. You will honor your father and mother. But, and, and you're right. You could say, you know, no adultery means you will maintain fidelity, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, so, I, no, I agree. This is, this, is, this is powerful stuff. This is dramatic stuff. And, and, and it is, it is uh, it's supposed to be like that. I mean, this is supposed to stop you short. Really, the story that the writer of Exodus is telling changes at chapter 20. It takes on a very, very different flavor. And as we go through the rest of Exodus, and we learn about the different laws, we learn about how the tabernacle is going to be made, we learn about the way that God is going to ordain worship for his people. In Leviticus, we see the extensive regulations for how the sacrifices are to be performed. got to remember 
the basis for all of this is that God is who he is. That he is in a unique covenant relationship with his people. And he demands their faithfulness, their exclusive worship. He demands that they treat him in his name as he deserves to be treated. And again, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to see how this applies to us as well. Let's pray. Lord God, we recognize that we are not in the same kind of covenant relationship with you that your people Israel were. We recognize that we have been grafted into a tree. We recognize, Lord, that we are in relationship with you through the new covenant in the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we recognize that you have given us in your word and in the history of your people the story of how it is that you are about your work of cosmic redemption. We recognize that we, strange as it seems, get to be part of this story as well. And Lord, we confess that a key part of that for us is that we need to recognize we are commanded to treat you as you deserve to be treated, as our Lord as the God of the entire universe, as the one who has redeemed us, your people, from slavery to sin. Pray that you would give us the grace to treat you as you deserve to be treated and follow you faithfully all the days of our lives. In Christ's name.